0: You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, we're coming to you from a class I teach, which has kept me from doing the monologue. But we do have a great interview in store this week and we'll be back with the monologue next week. The interview is with Dr. Alex Dennis. He's an associate professor of medicine at OHSU and he has a long career in hematology oncology, practicing for over 30 years. And he's gonna share some reflections about that long tenure. Hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Dr. Alex Dennis. Dr. Dennis is an associate professor of medicine here at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a practicing hematologist, oncologist, and he truly keeps up an active interest in all of hemonc. He is originally from Hungary. He came to the United States and did his medical school at the University of Missouri. He did his residency at Hopkins University and his fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis. He was on the faculty at WashU St. Louis for over 30 years. And then in 2015, he came and joined the faculty at OHSU. Um, he has family in the area. He has a son who's a practicing physician in town. And Dr. Dennis and I were talking very recently. And uh, what, what came up? Um, you had mentioned to me that you had listened to a few episodes of the podcast and, and you liked uh, much of what you heard. Um, and you mentioned that it would be interesting to talk to someone who has had a long um, uh, tenure in oncology. To kind of give some historical perspective, what has changed over the last thirty years, and I realized that person was you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Doctor Dennis, thank you so much for coming.
1: Thanks, Vinay. I'm looking forward to this interview, and I really enjoyed listening to your podcasts. And that's not a paid promotion or anything. That's
0: all right. We'll have yeah. we'll ha- I'll ha- I'll have you uh, receive your check later. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, I really appreciate it. I thank you so much for listening. Um, I think it's. Um, I do really wonder what you what you think about it and so we'll talk about um, we'll talk about a lot of topics today I guess I you know I guess first off the bat um, you've been doing this a long time um, do you still do you still enjoy Hemonk? as you do you feel about it the way you felt about it in 1978, 1980?
1: Well, obviously, uh, not quite the same, Uh because it was all new to me back then, Uh and HEMONC itself was new at that time, especially oncology. Right. It was a new field. Yeah. Actually, my fellowship was formerly in hematology, and then oncology evolved from that. I see. Um, And yes, I'm still very excited, especially with all of the new developments in immunotherapy, Mm -hmm. molecular diagnostics, uh, targeted therapies. And to be honest with you, I still look forward every Thursday to receiving the New England Journal in the mail really? and reading it. You know, I, I don't read it cover to cover, obviously, but I still enjoy it. It's just one of the highlights of my week. I really like that. Um, and that goes back, I think, to all the way back to medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we were talking earlier, yeah. uh, that you know, medical school was is competitive now, mm-hmm. obviously, but it was extremely competitive. Uh, back then because of the Vietnam War oh uh, I see and one of the ways that you could be deferred from uh-huh. the draft was by becoming a doctor I see and then choosing certain specialties um, it's sort of interesting so it was very competitive yet on the other hand uh, at Wash U I was involved for uh, uh, in interviewing some of the med school applicants and even he, and as and both at WashU and here some of the applicants to medical school are so talented of course yeah uh they you know they've done so much that i'm not sure that I would be able to compete with them if I was uh, applying for medical school now. I feel the same way. It's, it's
0: sort of an arms race, though. You know, um, their CVs are they may be better than uh, mine, uh, pretty oh. in the near future. Um, but they just they simply have published more articles, had more experiences. Yeah. Um, Doctor Dennis, when you decided you wanted to do hemang, you were a college student at the time.
1: No, no, no. When I, I oh, sorry, I'm, no,
0: but you did you want to do medical school.
1: Yeah. Uh, actually, when I entered medical school, I thought maybe I'll be an ophthalmologist because uh, the eye sort of, I took some uh, physiology courses in in uh, in college and learned about the eye, and it was very fascinating to me at that time. But I, I'll tell you what I think led me to a career in hem- in hem-onc. Uh Two things. One, uh, at the University of Missouri, the hematology division had a little poster. Uh, of the case of the week, which was just a very brief synopsis of a history, and then either a blood smear or a protein electrophoresis strip or a, a bone marrow uh, aspirates or biopsy smear, and you had to guess the diagnosis. And I really enjoyed that. I really actually enjoyed looking at blood smears mm-hmm. and, under the, and bone marrows the, under the microscope. And then when I was a, a third-year medical student on the medicine wards, I still remember we had a patient, an elderly gentleman, of course, elderly at that time was probably 50, Hmm. Uh, elderly gentleman admitted with diffuse lymphadenopathy, Uh drenching fevers, a lot of weight loss, just really sick looking, Uh and a lymph node biopsy was Hodgkin Uh lymphoma. Uh
0: And what year was this?
1: This would have been in 1971. Okay. So uh, We had ABVD. No, no, he oh. w- we had mop. We had mop as before. ABVD, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. So we had mop. And so I was a third year sort of scut guy on uh-huh. the team. Yeah. And the patient uh, needed to be treated. And we treated him with mop. And I was put in, tr- and they knew I had an interest in Hemang, So they, they asked me, or they told me, the residents told me to give him the chemotherapy. We had no oncology nursing at that time. So I started an IV in him. And my, I think my hands were just shaking when I was giving him this nitrogen mustard and vincristine. Yeah. Uh, but he did well. And the next morning on rounds, his lymphadenopathy had essentially disappeared. Wow. He had no more fevers. Yeah. Uh, he was eventually discharged from the hospital. Yeah. Feeling great. Yeah. I mean, that was just such an incredible experience to see that firsthand, you know, to see cancer disappear. Yeah, it was like one of these Lazarus effect. Right. Uh, I
0: think, um, you know, I, I obviously I've, I've, I've given ABVD for Hodgkin's lymphoma and, uh, and, and treated large cell lymphoma. And um, I think um, it is an impressive thing when you see somebody get chemotherapy and feel better um, and feel a lot better, often very quickly, as you describe. Yeah. I was reading, Dr. Dennis, that it, when, when MOP was administered uh, back in the late 60s, the availability and uh, use of antiemetics was actually um, very limited, uh, particularly compared to the kind of antiemetics we have today. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, that nausea and outright vomiting were uh, commonplace. Uh, was that the case?
1: Not only commonplace, it was terrible. As you know, yeah. not just for men, but particularly I would say for testicular cancer when uh-huh. we started to use platinum yeah. for testicular cancer. Yeah. Uh, we had uh, none of the current uh, highly effective antiemetics. Basically, we had thorazine and compazine uh-huh. primarily uh-huh. and relied heavily on sedation. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, so, not only has the outcome, uh, the end results of cancer therapy improved, but to a great extent, our supportive care has made it much more tolerable for patients.
0: Yeah, and I wonder to some degree, uh, improvements in outcomes are they themselves the result of supportive care, because better supportive care at Prepatent, you know, better, and and listeners may not all know, but obviously platinum is perhaps the most emetogenic uh, drug we have. uh, Better drugs to suppress nausea allow you to keep the dose and to continue all the cycles, get through all the cycles, and that may improve efficacy.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. It's not just, and then you know the other, the growth factors support oh, the right. transfusion support. You know, all add up to a better outcome. I think. Yeah.
0: I asked you the wrong question initially. I asked you what made you interested in Hemonc, but now I wanted to know what made you interested in medical school.
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I grew up in Hungary, and uh, my family. I have a twin brother actually, who's a urologist. Uh-huh. Uh, just the two of us and our parents, uh, we escaped from Hungary in 1956. We left Hungary on November 16th of 1956, uh, right after the revolution, uh-huh. the borders opened up, and my parents uh, felt that it would give us a better, uh, us, my brother and I, a better op- an opportunity for a better life in the U.S. Mm. We did have some relatives in the U.S. who had left Hungary in 48 uh-huh. after the war, and one of them was a physician. And I think he was a role model for all of us uh, when, when we came over. And, you know, I, I think I've just always wanted to be a doctor. You did uh, uh, at I an early an, uh, Even at an early age. I entered uh, Wash U as an undergraduate with a pre-med major mm-hmm. and took a pre-med courses. So, you know, I think I always wanted to be a doctor. I see. And uh, But your parents themselves, they weren't physicians. No, my dad was an attorney and my mother was a housemaker. Yeah. Did you grow up in St. Louis? Yeah, uh, we came to St. Louis in 1956 uh-huh. uh, and then grew up in St. Louis, uh, met my wife in St. Louis. She was born in St. Uh-huh. Louis. and uh, All your kids were born in St. Louis? No, no, no. Uh-huh. Uh, two of them, the last two were born in St. Louis. The first one was born at Hopkins, at Hopkins. Mm-hmm. and the second one was born in Phoenix, Arizona, because between my residency and fellowship, again, this was because of the Vietnam War, I signed up for two years with the CDC oh, you did, as a, and was an epidemiologist with the CDC mm-hmm. uh, as my sort of military service. I, see. I was stationed in Arizona, and that's where our, our son, who's the surgeon here, mm-hmm. was born. I see.
0: So um that's such an interesting story. Um you you did your medical school in Missouri and then um when you applied for residency there's no match back then. It was uh just uh, would you submit letters?
1: Yeah, you submitted letters and your and your scores, you know, your national uh medical examiner scores and uh interviewed and uh, was accepted. Yeah.
0: And uh, the the Osler Program of Internal Medicine is a uh, it remains uh, but it always has been a very distinguished program. Um, This is a program that literally traces its legacy. Uh, To William Osler, uh, who is uh, not only thought of as a consummate clinician, but he was also uh, very gifted with words. And some of his, um, or, uh, you know, I I guess to be honest, one always wonders how many quotes he actually said and what is attributed to him. But whatever I see attributed to him uh, is usually sort of put just perfectly. Um, When you got into Hopkins, um, I guess, did, did, did it feel, you know, like something special?
1: Oh yeah, very much. So uh-huh. I mean first of all there was this tradition. Yeah. uh starting back with Osler and uh, you know I sort of became a an Osler whatever you fan. Car- Os- Osler fan mm-hmm. and uh, have learned quite a bit about him and read about him and that. But uh, you know it was I mean and we called ourselves the Osler Marines, actually. Really? Yeah, that's what, because the, the training program at that time was so grueling. That obviously, there were no work hour restrictions. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, just to give you an, uh, an example of what the residency was like, the Osler residency, we, we, we took turns. We were on call, long call. The next day was short call, and then the third day was off. So on your on call or long call day, you started accepting patients uh Admissions from at 8 a.m. and alternated them till 5 p.m. with the short call person. Mm -hmm. After 5 p.m. till the next morning at 8, you took every admission. Okay. And then, then you switched, so you were up all night, basically. Right. Then we that was your long call day. Then came your short call day, where you alternated admissions with the next Uh, on call resident till 5. So you maybe got finished with your notes and everything by midnight or one got home, then you're then you're off day, you didn't take any admissions, you just had to catch up with everything, so you were busy till six or seven at night. And and remember, we had to write all our notes by hand. There was no cut and paste, there was no epic, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was all handwritten, all the orders were handwritten. And in addition, uh, we had, I mean, the, the tradition of that residency was that uh, when you presented that patient the next morning to the attendee, You had to have a blood smear in the chart, Uh a right stain. You did your own blood smear, you did your own right stain. Uh We had a little lab on each floor. Uh, Did your own urine analysis. Uh, If there was some sputum or whatever, you did your own uh, gram stain for that. So you did all of that yourself uh, in addition to writing the notes and everything.
0: I see. It's quite a lot of hours you spent
1: there. Oh yeah.
0: Now, my understanding, though, is that um, average length of stay was very long back then. People it People stayed a lo- a great deal of time.
1: Well, people were admitted uh, uh, for reasons that there would be outpatient procedures and that, outpatient treatment now. Actually, there were two services, if you remember, at, at, at uh, Hopkins, the Osler service and the Marburg service.
0: Okay. I didn't know that.
1: The yeah. Osler service was the sort of the public uh, service. And the Marburg service was the private service, oh, where the private attendings would admit their less sick patients for like GI workups and things sure. like that. So that was a little bit easier. Uh, on the Osler service, there, uh, we did have an attending who came around and made rounds with us and supervised uh, and basically taught us. But basi- uh, basically, all of the treatment decisions were made by the resident team. Uh, with the assistance of the chief resident.
0: When you reflect back on residency, um, I I get the sense from you that you reflect back with nostalgia and optimism. You enjoyed your time.
1: I did. I mean, it was probably the most grueling time of my life, Uh, uh, especially the intern year. The the second year was 24 on, 24 off, so that was easier, actually. Um, I I did, but I'll tell you, I think uh, the chief of medicine... Uh, when, when we started internship that year was Mac Harvey A. Mm-hmm. McGee Harvey mm-hmm. who wrote the textbooks yeah. principles and Practice uh, 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 in uh, the definitely. Osler tradition you yeah. know? and Mac Harvey uh, I still remember he, he <laughs> invited us to his house all the interns for dinner uh, when we arrived and he said boys there's just one thing I want you to learn during your internship and that's to recognize when a patient is sick if you can do that, you'll be a successful physician. I see. And I think that's, that has stuck with me, uh, and I think that's, that's a very important principle. Um, are you still close with colleagues,
0: students that you went to school with, or you did residency with?
1: I'm close uh, particularly with one fellow, uh, one of my colleagues that I was in residence with. He also went into oncology, uh-huh. and he's practicing in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. He stayed in Baltimore. We stay very close. We talk on the telephone, oh, once or twice a month, and uh-huh. we visit each other. So I stay very close with him. A couple other ones uh, in my residency, less close. Uh, you know, I, even though um, you know we train many years
0: apart, I have the same sort of um, relationship with people I trained. I find that um, there's something about having gone through these uh, things together uh, that makes you very, very close. And um, it's kind of a very deep friendship that, um, as you get older, it's um, tougher to, to end up as close friends with someone as the people you trained with.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I think because we relied so much on each other uh-huh. to pull us through, especially when you had you know five admissions in two hours, you know, sepsis, infarct, pulmonary edema, ketoacidosis. You know, bam, 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 bam. You yeah. called
0: your friend and said, could you help me out or something like yeah, that.
1: Yeah, yeah, you'd say. And, you know, even if he was a short guy and you were really backed up, he'd stay and help you out. You really? Know. So uh, it really bonded us, I think. Yeah. And and when you trained, was it
0: uh, to get the admissions? Did you carry the pager? Was it telephone system? How did they? Uh,
1: at that time, we yeah. had a pager. Okay. It was a voice pager. A voice pager, okay. Not a, not a digital pager. Uh-huh. It was a voice pager. Uh, But also an overhead uh, paging system. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
0: And um, I think the handwritten notes, you know, people um, are very critical of handwritten notes, and um, this may shock you, but um, even uh, just over a decade ago when I went to medical school, Um, at the University of Chicago. It was in the last years before we had gone fully digital. And although some things were digital, like the reporting of lab results and the Mm -hmm. uh, visibility of imaging, uh, some things were still handwritten and notes were still handwritten. And when I trained as a student, we would get several pieces of green paper and you would template your note before rounds. And that meant you had to write in a neat handwriting. You had to fit it in the box that was, you know, for uh, assessment for plan in an H and P, for instance, or mm-hmm. subjective. That box, you kind of had to fit it in that space. Um, and I guess I would say that, without a doubt, there are advantages to the current record. We can find oh, things. True. We can find things that we were very difficult to find. But one thing that was nice about the old way um, was it forced you to really be succinct to think twice about what you want to say, not to copy and paste, but to actually, you know, put it in your own words, because mm-hmm. you had to write it, and your your finger would get that little thing on the end of it, if yeah. you, you know, if you were writing too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, how do you feel about it? Is it sort of, there are pluses and minuses to both?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think uh, the way that patient care is approached now, uh, at least on the inpatient, when, when I'm attending, is uh, I think typically the residents go to the computer first, look up the patient's previous history, previous notes and what, cut and paste a lot of that to sort of almost, you know, prepare their note before they even see the patient. Right, right. And and they unfortunately I think that for that uh, sort of prejudices you sometimes, uh, and you don't keep such an open mind about possible diagnoses or possible problems, and uh, and then they go to the patient and interview the patient. Whereas I think uh, the way we did it was that we went and saw the patient first, interviewed the patient, and then sat down at the desk to write our note, and that's when we got out the old, you know reams and reams of paper charts and uh, just to make sure that we didn't miss anything. You know, that's well put. Um,
0: I, very recently, um, or you know, I, I've been on service over the last year and, and sometimes um, uh, you get told about a, a patient and um, they, they put it to you with the diagnosis, this patient has X and we're being consulted for Y. And um, I always try to say, okay, let's say they have X. Um, but let's also say that it's not X. And, you know, let's keep our minds open for a second. Mm-hmm. What would we think about? And then recently, um, you know, one of the fellows was saying, oh, well, why are you poo pooing this diagnosis? And I wanted to say, and I did say, uh, you know, I- I'm not poo pooing the diagnosis. I'm not saying that that's not the case. You're probably, perhaps you're right. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is, I don't want to walk into it. With the, with the idea that that is 100% the answer because I want to walk into it with a little bit of open-mindedness because nine out of 10 times I'm 100 you know, you're right. One out of 10 times you might not be right and if I've locked in my mind that that's the answer, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna be thinking about other things but I want to keep a little bit broader thinking until we know enough information that we're all on the same page, you know?
1: Yeah, I recently saw a patient uh, here actually who uh, was referred because of anemia for an anemia workup. She was clearly iron deficient. There's no question about that. And uh, But in her workup, it had never been noticed, but I noticed she had a persistent eosinophilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, never investigated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually the history, uh, this lady was either from West Africa mm-hmm. or Southeast Asia. I can't remember exactly. And
0: over 1,000 uh, absolute eosinophils in the bloodstream? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and what are you thinking about? Helminths? Uh-
1: yeah, she had ended up. Uh, uh, we sent off serology, ah. and She had stratiglodies. Stratiglodies, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, it's
0: unifying so diagnosis. Yeah, okay. yeah. Oh, I nice
1: mean, work, Doctor Dennis. Well, uh, I'm not trying to take credit for. No, her. no, no. But
0: I think I, I think you're you're onto something. That um, what did you do differently is that um, I guess you you reviewed the data yourself, um, mm-hmm. and um, you you kept a little bit of an open mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I still remember this uh, case in St. Louis, uh, and because of HIPAA. Uh, hours, yeah. it, it was the mother-in-law of a very famous sportscaster, internationally recognized sportscaster's mother-in-law, was admitted uh, to the hospital for an elective, some kind of cardiac procedure, I think it was. And uh, we were asked to see her because she had a prolonged uh, pro-times mm-hmm. for a possible coagulopathy. Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, that turned out to be not important at all, but on examining, just on examining her, she had this gigantic spleen that nobody had ever felt, mm-hmm. and it turned out she had a marginal zone lymphoma. Right. You know, uh, completely un- unanticipated. And know. we
0: and we can do something about that often. and oh, uh, yeah, And he yeah. took a splenectomy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah, that and often she did does quite she, the did, trip, yeah. she did great. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um, and talk for a minute about that. This is something that you and I have talked about. Um, physical examination. Um, sometimes I fear that these days um, people walk away with thinking that a good physical examination is a PET CT. Uh, would you would you be able to say that, you know, there is a value to the physical examination, not the PET CT? Or how do you feel about it?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. One is that, and I've told, uh, you know, on attending rounds, I've told residents, uh, you know, you're not sure where you're going to end up if you're out in some rural hospital, and there's no PET scan, there's no CT scan, you know, how are you going to rely on trying to diagnose an illness? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you, I think we have to use our innate skills uh, to do that. Uh, one thing that's, uh, that I think is losing uh, its importance is the physical exam, as you said, and I'm not blaming anybody, right. but I think, you know, if somebody hears a murmur, they're not interested in really trying to characterize it because they can get an echocardiogram right often the same day within a few hours right? within an hour or two right. and, and have the, possibly have the answer same thing with an abdominal mass or uh, or some abdominal symptoms just get a, a CT scan headache you know don't worry you know I don't think I don't I'm not even sure neurologists even do very thorough neuro as they once did right yes yeah. they once did yeah. because of the MRI right. Um, what's a, what's astounding to me is that at Hopkins they had a, uh, a ledger of uh, admissions to uh, the admissions to Johns Hopkins hospital in the late 1890s and that uh, and uh, in, in this ledger they mm-hmm. came, they had these unbelievable diagnoses and they had no x-ray at that time i think very limited laboratory. It was mm-hmm. all clinical history and physical. Mm-hmm. I mean, that diagnosis in this ledger like tuberculosis of the left kidney. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Things right. Things like that. You know, it's just, um, it's just astounding.
0: I, when I trained in residency, there was a, a, a senior physician who was, um, you know, sort of tried to teach us many times how to palpate a kidney. And, yeah. um, you know, he kind of took pride in that. Um, I wanted to ask you about... Um, you finish residency, and then you spent those. Then you enter the CDC years. And you, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Before your fellowship, and so you went out there to Phoenix, Arizona, and you worked in. And I first of all, I didn't know there was an outpost of the CDC in Phoenix.
1: It's no longer there. Oh, it, I see. It was there, but I was recently in Phoenix, and it's no longer there. Okay. Yeah,
0: and yeah. what? Uh, and what did they? Ha- and what did they have you doing?
1: Well, I worked. <clears throat> it was interesting when when you joined the CDC as an EIS officer. Yeah. Uh, the Epidemiology Intelligence Service. They had sort of a, a job fair where <coughs> different uh, organiza- different branches of the CDC try to recruit people. And I, I was drawn to this uh, uh, hepatitis branch of the CDC, which was located in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because we had a basic lab there, uh, 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 a lab, an actual research lab there. We had a chimpanzee colony, of chim- a colony of chimps that were infected with hepatitis B that we studied wow. and then we also went on to clinical investigations of hepatitis outbreaks in fact I remember now that in 1975 yeah I came into Portland. That was the first time I ever uh, came to Portland. I see. To investigate a uh, foodborne outbreak of hepatitis A at one of the uh, Middle Eastern restaurants here in, in Portland. Wow, in 75? In 1975, So yeah. in 75, correct me
0: if I'm wrong, They were uh, there was hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and then non-A and non-B hepatitis. Right,
1: non-A, non-B hepatitis. Which yeah. we
0: now know is a C, D, and an E. Yeah. Minimum, yeah. at least, uh-huh. maybe
1: perhaps even more. Maybe
0: more, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, that's interesting. So um, you did this work in hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess I, I'm, I I don't know my history this well on this issue. Sure. Uh, hep B vaccination, universal vaccination, that fell after 75, didn't oh, yeah, it? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: We were just basically the serologic diagnosis uh, as far as recognizing core yeah. antigen, core antibodies, uh-huh. surface antigen, surface antibody. Was just come We were just involved in that. I see. Actually, what I did, my big project with the CDC was interesting. Yeah. Uh, because it uh, it became apparent that hepatitis B was a bloodborne illness right. primarily, mm-hmm. and uh, and so one of the uh, groups that we were interested in was the incidence and the prevalence of hepatitis infection in physicians. Mm. So my project was that we went to the annual AMA meetings. Mm-hmm three years in a row mm-hmm. and set up a booth in the exhibit section where I designed a, a questionnaire that basically had to do with risk factors and then the physicians who came to the booth and volunteered uh, gave a blood sample and then we correlated the results of the blood sample with the risk factors such as years in practice, mm-hmm. exposure to blood, needle mm-hmm. sticks, mm-hmm. And, and whatnot. And, and uh, was there correlations? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the highest prevalence of uh, hepatitis B You know, our sample was in pathologists. I see. Yeah. Ah, of course, because of autopsies and autopsies dissections. And then, Ob- yeah, without and then gloves. surgeons or obstetricians came after that. Um, and actually, uh, so that article was published in JAMA. Oh, wow. And uh, actually, I had a Time Magazine interview about that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. And this is in the late 70s. Yeah, between 1975 and 1977. 75 yeah. and 77. Mm-hmm. You know, I
0: had a. Um, senior physician at the NCI who worked there for also over three decades. And he talked to me about um, some of the things they were doing uh, between 1982 and 1988. This was the outbreak of HIV. HIV, yeah. They didn't know the cause of HIV. Um, I believe at the time they referred to it as GRID, a gay-related immunodeficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, they were told that it's not bloodborne initially, um, mm-hmm. and this uh, senior faculty would talk about how remembering doing codes on some of these patients, having blood spillovers, bare hands, mm-hmm. um, and it. Um, and he said, if it, if it speaks to anything, it speaks to the fact that this was not a highly communicable um, disease. Otherwise, I would certainly have had it. Mm-hmm. Um, And in those days, in the 70s and the 80s, um, even when performing um, certain um, bedside procedures, the use of gloves, universal precautions, that had not yet um, come into vogue. Is that fair to say?
1: Well, I mean, uh, yes and no. I I mean, we recognize that that was important. Uh Uh, But you're right, not many people uh, uh, adhered to that. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember one time when I was uh, during my fellowship. One of the early bone marrows that I was doing, right. I think it was a pretty obese person, and I was really having a hard time getting, uh, you know, trying to get a bone marrow sample. And so I asked the nurse, I said, "Please call Dr. So- the attending to help." So he came storming in the room, no gloves, nothing, grabbed the bone marrow biopsy needle, stuck it in, took a sample, and left. <laughs> <laughs> that kind yeah. of, cav- yeah, that kind of uh, gung ho attitude. Yeah, yeah.
0: Let me ask you about fellowship. So, Mm -hmm. uh, 77, you start fellowship at Washington University, St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, today, it's a very distinguished and venerable place. Um, And even back then, in the 70s, it was still known for being just a world-class cancer hospital?
1: Primarily for hematology. For hematology, I see, Uh, right. uh, Dr. Carl Moore had been head of hematology, Mm -hmm. head of uh, internal medicine, chief of medicine uh, for many years. And he was uh, obviously a very renowned hematologist. And so it's primarily a hematology uh, uh, powerhouse, but primarily in basic science of hematology. Uh, th- when I was there, the co chiefs or co directors of hematology were Dr. Phil Majerus and uh, Stuart Kornfeld. Oh, wow, Dr. Kornfeld, uh, yeah. of course.
0: Dr. Dennis, during your fellowship, you know, and afterwards, I actually don't know um,
1: your practice at WashU. What was your practice for all these years? Well, uh, when I started out, uh, so I I finished uh, in 79 or so, and then I stayed on the faculty there uh, in a clinical position, uh, basically seeing patients and uh, teaching. And then uh, at that time, uh, there was really no oncology. Uh, It was just a... Uh, burgeoning field. Very burgeoning field yeah. uh, at, at WashU. And to be honest with you, the focus was so much on basic science that the clinicians were really underappreciated. Mm-hmm. So I actually left WashU, the, the full-time faculty of WashU, for uh, about 15 years. Oh, I see. And joined a private group in St. Louis, but stayed on there teaching the uh, adjunct, yeah. adjunct faculty and actually, had fellows rotating through my practice. Oh, wonderful! That. Yeah, and uh, and then when they decided to uh, go ahead with a uh, major uh, imp- uh, effort in in oncology, and formed the Siteman Cancer Center. Right. In uh, 1999, I went back, and then I stayed there. I see. Uh, For the duration. For, for yeah. another, yeah, decade. I see. And so, what was what was the private group like between in the
0: 1980s? What was that like to practice?
1: Well, I mean. Um, it was much different than now, because uh-huh. partly because we had so many patients in the hospital. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the chemotherapy regimens inpatient. Were, were inpatient uh-huh. regimens rather than outpatient regimens. And uh, obviously, uh, we didn't have all the supportive care that we have now. So patients were very, very sick uh, and uh, you know, pain. Pain management was, di- was much more difficult than mm-hmm. We didn't have these sustained release uh, or slow release. Narcotics, and, yeah. Narcotics uh-huh. and that. So it was different, yeah.
0: And um, my understanding is that, um, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but many providers who've practiced um, in these years talk about, um, listeners may not know this, but uh, the first cancer blockbuster drug was Taxol, 1999. The first cancer drug that in one year earned more than a billion dollars. And in the '80s and '70s, um, and even the early '90s, in oncology, the majority of clinical trials are NCI sponsored or run by cooperative groups. Um, the industry involvement is relatively low. Very low. Very low. Um, the number of novel drugs that come to market are, and not certainly not the pace we've gotten in the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was a different field in this in that respect. Um, that um, it it wasn't a clinical trial heavy field. Would that be fair to say?
1: Uh, yes and no. I mean, uh, there were obviously clinical trials in the major diseases, I see. Uh, you know, in lymphomas, yeah. breast cancer and uh-huh. whatnot. Uh, but you're right. Um, it wasn't to the extent that we have uh, hundreds, if not thousands of trials now. Mm-hmm. I
0: guess that's, a, I mean, obviously that uh, makes me think about the uh, seminal paper by Rick Fisher and colleagues, which was pro versus CHOP versus M. Um, Baycod uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1992, I think. Yeah. Um, that must have been one of those early trials um, that, yeah, that was the trial that obviously showed that CHOP, uh, you, you couldn't beat CHOP. And before we started talking, you were telling me about, um, you know, reflecting back about 30 years. Um, some of the fields in which you feel like we've struggled and um you know and what what are those fields if we could talk yeah
1: i think as we as we mentioned earlier i think uh obviously there have been tremendous advances in the management of many cancers i mean you take a disease like multiple myeloma mm-hmm. when i was a fellow the only therapy that we had for uh multiple myeloma Malphalan. was alcoran or melphalan uh-huh. and prednisone i think yeah and then when patients failed that uh, and, and they were still in pretty good shape. We usually uh, gave cyto- high dose yeah. cytosine, right? You know, uh, and that was pretty much it. Uh, then, and that was also the very early days of bone marrow transplantation. Mm, I see. Uh, one of my attendings at WashU was Jeff Herzig, mm-hmm. who was one of the forefathers of uh, transplantation. So we had a lot of interest at that time in at WashU. Mm-hmm. But you take a disease like multiple myeloma, the median survival at that time was maybe two years, uh-huh. I think, yeah, and now it 's seven like plus seven or plus yeah. years, yeah, and lots of lines of lines of therapy, yeah for renal cell carcinoma, yeah you had we, had megase, oh, right. we had mega megase right the megase was megase, the only yeah. drug that we used now, look at the yeah. potpourri of of uh, treatments that we have, so I mean, it's it's just exploded in the last you know ten fifteen years, mm-hmm. which I think is uh, is of some concern to me. In one in the respect that uh, I don't know how community clinical oncologists are going to be able to keep up adequately with all these different no, that's a fair question. I mean, you know? it's a lot. I mean, it's uh, a lot. Yeah. I think I
0: was just looking at the article by um, Guidon Blumenthal and Rick Pazder that came out on Nature Reviews, clinical oncology, and I think they're talking about something like, you know 30 to 40 drug approvals in the last year. We are talking about new and supplemental. Oh, sure. uh, that's a lot for someone who is already four days a week seeing patients eight to 10 hours a day, yeah, yeah. Um, at least four days a week, maybe five days a week, um, to keep track of them all, and then to learn the nuance of like, when
1: they should be used, in what order, what sequence. Yeah, exactly. And now getting back to your yeah, yeah, no. uh, uh, comments about the disappointments, let's say, I would say that acute leukemia is somewhat disappointing. Obviously, we have transplant now, which was just bur- in its early days back then. But basically, the induction therapy for acute leukemia, ad- adult uh, AML, is basically seven and three. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've tweaked it, we have better supportive care, patients do better, we have better patient selection, Um, but it's basically still seven and three. If you look at testicular cancer, you know, uh, it's still Beb. you know platinum yeah. BEP, yeah. you know which the which Einhorn came up with yeah. in the early '80s, yeah. you know, uh, and and I, I think one an, another disease in particular was small cell lung cancer. Mm-hmm. I clearly remember. So remember, this was the days when CHOP came out yeah. and a mop for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yeah. These combination yeah. regimens. So we had all these acronyms. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you open the journal, the Journal of Clinical Oncology. You just read one, you know, promate side of them, uh, you know, MBACA, da da da, yeah, you know, yeah, all yeah. these acronyms. Yeah. Um, but uh, and small cell lung cancer had such a high response rate yeah. to chemotherapy at that time. We we're using C A B, for example. Yeah. Uh, had such a high response rate that we thought we were also going to be able to cure, cure, cure that yeah, yeah. within the next couple of years and actually we thought we would be able to cure it with stem with bone marrow transplant yeah. and high dose chemotherapy and it's been totally disappointing i mean we can cure maybe 5% yeah, you know, I mean, people, you know, literature says uh-huh. you know twenty percent, but and here we're we, talking
0: about limited stage where they get consolidative radiotherapy, yeah, right? Yeah, maybe absolutely. We can, we can cure maybe, maybe there's a tail on that curve, right? There is a tail on but that. But an curve. extended stage, you know, yeah. the only drug approved, uh, you know, the the, the drug approved uh, atezolizumab with a very modest improvement in that I uh, yeah. uh, would empower one thirty three uh, yeah. randomized trial. But I think you're right. I mean, I guess it's hard for us in retrospect to kind of imagine what it must have been like. But, um, you know, from when I read kind of the the books and people's recollections and some of the old papers, I get the sense that um, there was some real enthusiasm in the late 60s and early 70s that um, not individual. Chemotherapy drugs, but a combination of chemotherapy drugs would be able to overcome drug resistance and achieve durable, long lasting cures. And we have these tantalizing um, possibilities Hodgkin's lymphoma, we could cure with MOP. And then Giovanni Belladonna and ABVD, we could cure. And then we had Einhorn's data from BEP um, with very high cure rates of testicle cancer, especially seminoma. Um, and then we. Imagine, like in small cell, you have a ninety-plus response rate, and you think it's just like one more drug, and Mm. I can eradicate this clone, and I get it. Yeah, yeah. And and then now, thirty-plus years later, um, to have a drug, the only drug in the last ten years that gets approved on the basis of an OS benefit is something like two points a month at Tezo, Um, and. And here too, I think in this particular small cell, immunotherapy has disappointed people because you have a cancer um, that is, you know, just uh, just a mess, uh, you know, a genetic mess with tons of antigen on the top, and you're still getting these kind of very lackluster response rates. Yeah. Um, I guess it is kind of frustrating and um, humbling, and kind of makes one think of the historical perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is, uh, and especially if. You know, when you see a patient with small cell lung cancer, for example, and they assume that we've made all these tremendous advances in cancer therapy, that, and you have to tell them, well, really, in honesty, we're using platinum etoposide, yeah. uh, which we used 20, 25, 30 years ago. Yeah.
0: What do you remember about the rise and fall of autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer? My understanding is that that was done quite a bit, and even at WashU it was done. Well, not only
1: WashU, uh, it was interesting that uh, these, the, all these uh, single-institution phase yeah. 2 trials came out uh, suggesting that uh, stem cell transplants for patients with 10 or more positive nodes mm-hmm was generally the criteria, it was adjuvant stem cell transplantation. Right, not or even. Or actually consolidation, uh-huh. I would kind say, yeah. uh, because they got adjuvant chemotherapy or hormonal therapy, usually with CMF or mm-hmm. regimen like that. Mm-hmm. And then the high-risk patients were taken on to uh, stem cell trans- bone marrow transplantation. And these single institutions, uh, 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 studies, particularly from Duke, from Peters mm-hmm. uh, yeah. at, at Duke. He was one of the gurus at that time. Uh, I remember him presenting at ASCO meetings and that, you know, these tremendous survivals in these high-risk patients. And then, uh, and so because of that, there was a tremendous, and because of the high prevalence of high incidence of breast cancer, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for it. And there was a company, uh, Bill West, who started the West Clinic in uh, Memphis, Mm -hmm. formed a company that's, uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the name, but uh, they basically sort of franchised uh, autologous stem cell transplants for community hospitals uh, because the community hospitals didn't want to get left behind. And so, uh, even in St. Louis, I think two, uh, although we were doing stem cell transplants at Wash U, um, one or possibly two c- uh, community hospitals developed their own autologous program, just for primarily for breast cancer, uh-huh. and um, and so that was I mean there are hundreds, of, if not thousands, of uh, stem cell transplant programs just s- sprouted up uh, because of this data from Bill Peters, mm-hmm. and uh, and then uh, finally the data, the randomized trial from right. South Africa. Uh-huh. I'm blocking on the author. I'm, yeah, I forget his uh, name too. But uh, from South Africa,
0: 2000, circa 2000, in in yeah. uh, in
1: Asco, which turned later turned out to be a fraud. It turned out to be a complete fraud. It was yeah. all the data was fabricated, yeah. and then you know it just fizzled out. But I, you know, I, I, you know I feel badly that uh, through those years that we probably uh, obviously didn't help uh, you know patients, but actually hurt them with this high-dose, very toxic, intensive therapies. I think that's the that's the tough and painful lesson. And I read estimates that
0: up to like 40,000 women underwent that sort of off-protocol in right. those years. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's hard to kind of capture, but um, it was frequently covered in the New York Times. There was difficulty in enrolling on some of these cooperative group studies. Mm-hmm. And there was that South Africa study that added to the fuel the enthusiasm. There were a mm-hmm. lot of people making money hand over fist from doing this because it reimbursed quite well. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a tough chapter. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about, yeah, what was it like to practice through the war on cancer and to today?
1: Well, you know, I think, again, this is sort of one of the disappointments Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, in looking back over my career is, you know, Richard Nixon came out in 1971 and signed the Declaration of War on Cancer uh, this was shortly after the moon shot, the moon yeah. landing, so yeah. you know, uh, everything was... Enthusiasms were high. Uh, Enthusiasms were very high, and we thought cancer would be the next you know, curable disease. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, unfortunately, it's obviously uh, it, we're still trying to cure most cancers, Especially most advanced cancers. So, in that sense, it's been disappointing. And I uh, gave a talk, uh, I think I actually shared that slide with you once of the different Time magazine covers about the putative cures for cancer. Oh, no, I haven't seen it. It would be fascinating. To look yeah, at I'll yet. send it to you yeah. uh, through the. Last 20, 30 years, yeah. I still remember when interferon was on the cover right. uh, as the next wonder drug, uh-huh. and then you, you mentioned taxol. Right. Of course, Gleevec. Yeah, I um, remember that night. Uh, yeah, was on, on the, the uh, was on the cover. So, uh, but uh, you just look through, and uh, all these uh, therapies that we thought were going to be the next way to cure cancer, and unfortunately, they haven't.
0: Yeah, I think it's a very tough um, thing because on the one hand. Um, You know, part of me wants to applaud all of these researchers for their optimism because we need them to be optimistic to go out and do this kind of very difficult basic science work for many years, um, often in very difficult funding climates. Um, But part of me is always, particularly me, and listeners will know, I'm also very critical, and I wish that this rhetoric could kind of come in line with the expectations. I wish we could live in a world where scientists could be perfectly honest about what science can do and what time spans it can do it in and we have a lot more funding for science because i think those two things have to mm-hmm. both be true that it is the best path forward even though you know success is few and far between um i wanted to ask you about
1: the cost of drugs yeah i mean it's it's incredible you know we used to think that bone marrow transplantation was expensive right it's not basically a bargain. It's a deal. It's they a talk deal. about in
0: myeloma that uh, maybe one of the virtues of autotransplant myeloma might be to uh, buy you some time away from those novel um, uh, 100K per year drugs and maybe several hundred K per year
1: regimens. Yeah, and your myeloma prostate cancer, you know, abiraterone, yeah. enzalutamide, yeah, ten to $14,000 a month. A month, yeah. You know, breast cancer, the CDK4-6 inhibitors, thousands of dollars a month. Um yeah you know, I just uh i mean you 're much more involved in healthcare economics yeah. than I have been i mean i don 't know how long we can sustain this uh, and and ten years ago, twenty years ago d- you didn 't see it like it, no one would have
0: guessed it would have been so much
1: well, I still remember this is uh in the early days of chop chemotherapy yeah. uh, this was at Wash U. uh i had a was treating a gentleman with chop and he came in for his third or second or third cycle and then the 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 department's business manager came up to me frantically and said, "You know, you know I don't think you can treat him anymore because we just learned he didn't have insurance for the uh, and the cost of Adrian Eisen was like a hundred dollars, and so we thought, Oh my God, what are we gonna do yeah you know we, we thought that was right. our, uh, uh, too much t- money too, yeah, too, yeah.
0: that was an unsustainable
1: yeah we thought at that time, mm-hmm. uh you know, I just don't know, uh especially the drugs." That give you sort of marginal, you know, statistically significant, but really clinically question mark mark, uh, advances. The
0: ramuciramabs, the fliberceps, yeah, these kind of, exactly. I do wonder. I mean, I think that um, uh, we are kind of reaching a breaking point, I think. Um, And, um, well, just today the Senate Finance Committee has a hearing on drug prices, and perhaps they'll finally do something. Let me ask you, um, you made a note about this, the complexity of care. It could, Care has gotten very complicated in oncology. You need to know a lot of things. Timing matters a great deal. Um,
1: has it made it more rewarding, more taxing? I think both. Uh, I think uh, in the sense, obviously, it's more taxing. But on the other hand, you know, information is so much more readily available uh-huh, now. Yeah. One of the things I failed to mention, I think in terms of my fellowship at WashU, I think, and this has been a tradition at WashU, one of the most challenging and difficult parts of that fellowship was that the fellows were responsible for presenting a clinical conference on Wednesday and Friday mornings. These were one-hour conferences, uh, two presentations each, 30 minutes each, and there were uh, basically, a, a case-based, mm-hmm. where it was an actual patient you had seen, and you just discussed one aspect or one interesting aspect of the diagnosis or the or the treatment of that case. Uh, so we had there were four of these lectures that we had to give in a week, and there were three fellows. So we each every third week we had to give two, oh one on Wednesday <laughs> and one on Friday. I see, and uh, and of course there's no internet. Uh, up-to-date or anything like that. So we would basically spend evenings in the library looking through Index Medicus right. uh, to look for references. Then you'd find one reference, and if you find a good one, it was great because then you could look at those references right. and put together a presentation. We had uh, no PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have Kodachrome slides even at that time. Oh, wow. What we used were these overhead transparencies. Uh-huh, yes, uh, And... Uh, and Dr. Majeris, Phil Majeris was just brutal. He's one of the most brilliant people I've ever uh-huh. had a chance to meet. He would look at the transparency and instantly could analyze the, the graph and know whether it was important or not. Uh, right, yes. Uh, and we so you'd... Ones, d- yeah. So, and he always controlled the transparencies. Mm-hmm. So you'd be up there, and he'd, he, before he'd put the transparency on the projector, he'd look at it, and if he didn't think it was worthwhile, he'd just throw it away. <laughs> he, would, he just just, just <laughs> did that. And I'll tell you, it's, on many occasions, the fellows stayed up all night preparing for these uh, presentations. And then one of the crucial aspects of these presentations on Friday was that the fellows were responsible to bring donuts to the <laughs> conference. I see. Uh-huh. And they had to be high-quality donuts, <laughs> right, donuts, not just any donuts. Right, not just any. Because you were criticized. You yeah, yeah, you're criti- judged in part judged on your donut on choice. On your donuts, yeah. <laughs> well, but that's, that's but I th- I'll yeah. tell you, you know, g- going through that, having to prepare all these presentations every single week. I mean, you spend your weekends preparing because that's the only time you had off. You know, really, I think sharpens your skill. Oh, I agree. As a as a presenter, I agree. You know, that's just a um,
0: uh, as you know. A couple of years ago, I um, tried to get um, the fellows to do this my FDA drug talks, where they present the data. And uh, there's a little bit initially uh, uh, some reluctance to do it. And uh, every once in a while, I think people are um, uh, sensitive to if you ask them to give a lot of lectures in a row, even if they're brief lectures or things like that. I tell him that there are lots of things we make you do in residency. Um, this is probably one of the things that is the best preparation if you're gonna go into academic medicine. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? People ask us to give lectures on very short notice. Mm-hmm. And and you don't have a ton of time to prepare. And you need to be good at putting it together at, in a very tight time span. For some of us, it's even like on the flight to give the lecture. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, you know, I thought I knew something about giving lectures. Um, and I realized for you, I, I probably didn't. Um, I gave too much information and it was too fast. It was not, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I still don't know if I'm good at it, but I'm starting to see that way, the ways I was worse at it. Um, but I do think that also being comfortable up there and actually being, you know, your heart's not racing. Mm-hmm. That takes maybe 50 lectures before you get that under sure, your belt. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I do encourage people to the best preparation um, and also understanding oncology. It's one thing to read an article about non-small cell lung cancer. It's another thing when you're gonna be up there in front of everybody and you gotta walk through the decisions that were made and why those are decisions were justified. Mm-hmm. That makes you really have to know the, that data. Um, and it's a very good preparation for people who someday plan on giving oral sessions at national meetings sure. uh, because the audience there is not always gonna be so um, generous. They're gonna be very tough, mm-hmm. especially if they disagree. Um, so, in retrospect, many years in oncology, um, I guess I would say you still you're still practicing oncology. You still like it enough to practice.
1: Yeah, in fact, you know, uh, I'm practicing here at OHSU, uh-huh. but also I'm volunteer uh, at the VA to staff the uh, Thursday morning clinics for the fellows because I just like the uh, interactions with the fellows. I think they're. I mean we're f- very fortunate here to have yep. such high quality fellows. Absolutely. Uh, and they're hard working, uh, very productive, and I enjoyed the interaction. And one of the things that's most rewarding I think f- in an academic career is ha- occurred uh, just this last week when one of my uh the fellows that I spent a lot of time with uh at WashU was just named chief of hematology oncology at Grady Hospital in Atlanta. So he called me up and I mean he was almost like a son to us. Right. My wife and I had him over for dinner a lot and Uh got to know his family and everything. And so it's really, really rewarding when you see something like that. So he he was your trainee once upon a time, now he's the chief. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's gotta be a good feeling. Yeah,
0: yeah, it really is. And um, a- and the problems and the diagnoses, they still interest you as much as they did 20 years ago.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just as challenged uh, and I uh, try to solve problems, uh, you know, and uh, I enjoy the interactions with the patients. Uh, you know, I spent most of my career in St. Louis, so I was able to follow patients mm-hmm. longitudinally uh, after the, fortunately, the patients that were cured for many, many years Mm -hmm. and formed close relationships with some of the patients. Uh, And uh, I still remember the other one. I mean, I have so many interesting memories, but one of them was this, uh, uh, and this is where it's important, I think, to to actually treat a patient, not just a disease. Had a lady with uh, advanced breast cancer, mm-hmm. uh, and she had uh, recurrent ascites from her metastatic disease. And it came to the point uh, uh, that she couldn't come into clinic anymore for drainage. And so I said, well, I'll come out to your house. So I packed a plastic bag mm-hmm. um, with all the equipment, the vacuum bottles and all the stuff. Of course, yeah. Went out to her house and... Uh, Uh, She was laying on the couch. I did a paracentesis on her without ultrasound. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Just based on exam. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she was much more comfortable at that. As I'm about to leave their house, her her husband says, hey, would you like to see our Notre Dame room? Mm -hmm. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, take a look. So it turned out that her father Uh was one of the four horsemen Uh at Notre Dame. Uh And they had Uh this. A shrine. A shrine. I mean, it was just. I mean, it's things like that, you know, that uh, are really, you know, make you uh, make the patient interaction very rewarding, even though the patient ultimately died. Yeah, of course. But I think that um,
0: you you did a very good thing to be able to go there, and um, and that's one of the aspects of medicine that I feel like, even though we've had such tremendous strides in so many things, as we talked about. One of the things I feel like that we still um, could do a lot better job is that kind of human touch of being able to go to someone's house and make some of these things easier for people. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sometimes kind of, um, I guess, in awe and also kind of, um, boy, uh, overwhelmed at the thought of the amount of things a patient with cancer has to keep track of, these appointments, the visits, how to get here, coordinating this. Um, it's almost uh, overwhelming to me when I just try to imagine what it must be like to have a to f- to feel weak and tired and and still have all these things. And I wish we, as a healthcare system, could do more things like what you talked about. Send mm-hmm. you know go to someone's house and do a paracentesis in on the couch because we all know it can be done, say, quite safely. You, you don't need an ultrasound to do A, mm-hmm. a para with a large volume para, it's yeah. it's a very simple thing to do. Um, I wish we could do more of that. And um, And there's still ways there, you know, obviously there's still a great deal of kindness and humanity in this profession. Um, But that's just such a touching example, and I really commend you for doing it.
1: Well, you know, and I would do it again. You know, like you said, it was an easy procedure. And it just uh, took a little bit out of my time, but, you know, made this woman feel so much more comfortable. Yeah. You know, uh, the other thing I'll, I'll caution the young listeners yeah. is that we shouldn't, uh, I guess, transpose our value systems into those of our patients, mm-hmm. should uh, respect our patients' value systems. And this became, uh, I, I realized this, again, this was uh, shortly after, uh, no, it was during my fellowship at WashU. Uh, back then, be, uh, as, as we said earlier, myeloma was a terrible disease. Patients mm-hmm. were in the hospital's fractures all the time Mm -hmm. and bone pain and everything. I still remember we had a patient uh, on our service who was uh, probably middle-aged, very advanced myeloma, in for pain control. He was on one of these alternating pressure mattresses because he couldn't even turn. He was in so much pain. And so the attending asked me to go in and talk to him about end-of-life care and and those issues. Mm -hmm. So I... I go into the room and uh, and I had known this patient. I go into the room and he's laying there in bed, and uh, I you know introduce the subject by saying you know uh, you know I, I realize that your quality of life is is very very poor now. You're in pain. You're in bed. You can't go move. You can't get to the bathroom or anything, and he looks at me and goes, "Doc, what do you mean my quality of life is terrible?" I get to see my wife every day. I get to see my grandchildren every day and hold them and kiss them. My quality of life is great. Mm-hmm. You know, it just was a like a light bulb going on, right. you know, yeah. that here I assumed Right, right. you know, that uh that this poor man would want to end everything. Right. Uh, but uh, on the other p- and it was just the opposite. Right. You know. And I think that's something that um uh, uh,
0: that uh, it's it's it is an important lesson that we learn, which is that um, I think those of us who are fortunate enough to be very well um, often have the idea that quality of life is greatly impaired in states of disability and illness, um, but. Um, talking to patients and a wealth of empirical data suggests that there's quite a bit of quality of life, um, even in disability. And, mm-hmm. um, and and often it means a great deal. And uh, and we would never want to kind of put our values on top of someone else. So that's really a great takeaway take point. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I still remember that scene, yeah. Dr. Alex Dennis, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I think it's been a fascinating discussion. And um, I think, um, I guess, um, what gives me the the great um, joy is to see you, um, someone who's done this for for so many years. Um, and uh, you know, I guess I, I should tell listeners when I run into you in the hallway, um, you know, you I can tell you're enthusiastic about what you do, and you're telling me about some challenging situation you guys faced on the wards, and you're talking very excitedly about um, you know some new project you're working on, and um, that makes me feel really good uh, because I'm you know many years behind you, uh, in footsteps, mm. but, um, I look forward to, uh, and it gives me great joy to see someone, um, really take pleasure in being a part of this profession for so many years mm. and, uh, who's still e- energized by it every day. And, you know, and I know when I talk to the fellows, uh, they love rounding with you because they love hearing the kind of wisdom that comes with having, having been here and seen a lot over many years.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been a great career. I would, uh, do it again in a heartbeat, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Dennis, for oh, coming you're on. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes Store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could we be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.